Take your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. I was struck this week again as I was doing some devotions with the boys at night. Came across God's description of the <laughs> creation when he was finished and Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, 
God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And it almost like struck me as I was sitting there thinking, yes, it was very good. You're a creator. You're amazing. Things are, wow, you did this. But as soon as that's done, within two chapters, everything begins to fall apart. Death. <coughs> Evil. Very good becomes a cursed and evil world. It's almost like if you read your Bible, you start in one and get through chapter two, and you're like, wow, glory. And you have to wait until Revelation chapter four to see the creation begin to restore the way it's supposed to be. You gotta read your whole Bible. And all you see, you read it and you go through it. What do you see? Sin, death. Evil, wickedness, curses, plagues, diseases. It's everywhere. Read your Bible. Anybody reads the Bible, you might even be think if one of the reasons I, I'm convinced that the Bible itself affirms that it's God's word because it leaves out none of the bad details. None. A holy book that quote unquote, most other holy books portray everything in a good light. They're good people. The ones that follow that religion are good. Ours shows what? Wickedness, rebellion, sin, death. Then along comes this ray of light. 4,000 approximately years later, and that's when Jesus comes on the scene, right? In the Gospels. The Messiah is born. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's love. He's kind. He's Gentle, he's just, he's merciful, he's God in the flesh, right? And there's this great hope that arises <coughs> on the world and is born into the world. But just a short time, approximately 33 years, and he's gone again. And his death is horrible. The very ones he came to save brutally murder him. And have him killed. All of us know Christ, don't we? All of us that know him, especially, genuinely understand him, know his life, death, resurrection are eternally altering. They alter everything, doesn't it? His life does. But folks, evil is still here, isn't it? It's rampant. The curse is still in full effect. Satan is still wreaking havoc in this world. The churches Jesus was speaking to through John in the book of Revelation knew this full well. We've seen this, haven't we? As we've gone through the churches, evil is rampant. And there's a need for setting things right. These churches face, notice in your notes, constant wickedness from every direction. They faced persecution first. Persecution from the government. Domitian was in power as the emperor, and he's known for being barbaric in his treatment of the Christians during his reign, as well as a growing hostility from various citizens who believed <coughs> in emperor worship. 
And if anybody worshipped Christ the King, they were doing what? Committing treason, punishable by death, persecution from outside. And John himself describes his suffering under persecution as he was exiled to the island of Patmos, as we saw in 1.9. And he describes himself as a fellow partaker with the readers of tribulation, which implies what? That even the believers were going through tribulation in the churches. There was also persecution from the believer, the Jewish unbelievers, rather. This group, as we have seen through our study of the churches, was especially troublesome in Smyrna and Philadelphia, the, the two faithful churches. The two cities where, who were considered the most faithful by Christ himself were constantly being harassed by the synagogue of Satan. Interesting. The churches were also facing false teachers. The false teachers in Pergamum were promoting idol worship and immorality within the church. The false teachers in Thyatira were associated with Jezebel, who was promoting evil immorality within the church, and a lot of the church had embraced her teaching. Not to mention, most of the New Testament epistles mention or allude to some false teaching. Most of your New Testament epistles, read them, folks. They talk about false teachers. They're everywhere. Depravity, 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 depravity. Are you feeling it? Are you feeling the effects? Third, there's depravity. Depravity from the lost world they lived in. We know how the Bible describes the depravity of the world, right? Totally depraved. Lost, dead in their sin, led by Satan. Their heart is described as desperately sick. Who can understand it? None understand is what Romans said. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is our world that we live in. On and on and on. This depravity is being experienced all the time. It's everywhere you go. It's everybody you deal with. Not to mention within the church. Depravity from that which remains <coughs> in the believer. This was obvious by the fact that one of the churches was called dead, Sardis. And another one was called useless, a cause of vomit for the Lord Jesus, Laodicea. Out of the seven churches, five of them were considered full of sin. Depravity, 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 depravity. Even Apostle Paul himself calls himself, Oh, wretched man that I am, the very least of the saints. While believers throughout the Bible, genuine believers throughout the Bible, are described as far from perfect, right? Think about it. But the apostle Peter, what did he do? Denied Christ three times. Was restored, and then what happens? The apostle Paul rebukes him later on for being two-faced. David, the man after God's own heart, has his lover's husband killed. Murderer. Adulterer. Solomon embraces the idols of his wives. Moses doesn't reverence God, even after seeing God. <coughs> John Mark, who wrote the book 
or the Gospel of Mark, abandoned the missionaries, and countless folks, other cases of sin is revealed in the Bible. Read it. It's everywhere. Let me ask you a question. Do you see your own depravity? Do you? Oh, God. It's the part of my life I absolutely despise. How about you? It's everywhere. Desperately sick people. Even being regenerated, we have this hangover from the old man that is sickening. This is us. And finally, we see the effects of God's curse on the earth. Watch it. It's basically that ape went off and literally chewed the lady's face off. Why did that happen? I would suggest don't have a chip as a, as a, as a pet. But, part of the curse. I'm not surprised when animals go off and eat people or attack people. <coughs> it's part of the curse. Volcanoes. The churches had dealt with this. Floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, plagues, wild animals, droughts, famines. Tsunamis! It's everywhere, right? Do you see it? Romans 8 describes it well. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. We are dying for what? Restoration. We want to go back to Genesis 1, don't you? Not to mention Satan. The ruler of this world is Jesus calls him in John 12, 31. The prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2, 3 states. Satan is and his dominion who disguise themselves as angels of light and deceptively lead people astray. Folks, evil, wickedness, pain, death, anguish, depravity, crying, idolatry, and on and on it goes. When will it stop? When will it stop? Revelation 4. Hmm. You wonder why I'm here long. Long. Long get to long at Revelation 4 with you. Because I've gone through these churches. I couldn't wait to Revelation 4. I can't wait to get there. For the restoration of the creation begins. And God sets in order what is broken. Judges sin. This must be the cry of every one of our hearts, folks. Revelation 4 should be one of your greatest sections in your mind. 
we always start to examine the beginning of the restoration of the creation of our creator. This opening scene is in heaven and it unfolds in two main acts. Acts one, act 1 is Revelation 4 and Act 2 is Revelation 5. This beginning of the restoration of creation by our creator is also the scene of one of the Bible's most spectacular worship scenes. So from this scene we get a glimpse of what genuine worship looks like, as well as a glimpse into the final restoration of the creation. On the next several weeks, we're going to be going through and examining this worship scene. I pray it will provoke genuine worship in your own heart, as well as encourage you to persevere in light of this cursed world that we live in. So let's start the beginning of the restoration of the creation. Today we're going to try to cover two aspects of this great worship scene. First, the setting of the worship, and second, the object of the worship. The setting of the worship and the object of the worship. We're going to see that in Act 2, the object is going to expand. It's going to be filled in. The details are going to be given more in Act 2 than Revelation 5. Let's begin with the setting of worship. Read again, Revelation 4, 1 and 2. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Let's look at this setting for this worship scene and the final restoration of the creation. First, notice, when is the scene revealed? It starts at the beginning in verse 1, after these things I looked. This is after the first vision that John had received. The first vision probably incorporates all of Revelation 1, 10, all the way through 3, 22. That includes all the letters to the churches. The first uh, a vision started back when John first saw Jesus back in 1.10. Look back there real quick again. Verse 9, setting of the first vision. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet. Beginning of the first vision, it goes all the way to 322. And we start the new vision. The next step, the next sequence in John's reception of the revelation. It introduces the next major scene of the book of Revelation. Second in the setting, who is the scene revealed to? Again, John just picks back up on his role in receiving the revelation. We see in verse 1, I looked, or literally I saw. <coughs> and next it says, I had heard. Like the verse, I had heard, that's pointing back, and I'll get to that in a second. And I was in the spirit, or in, in verse 2. Notice, immediately I was, I was in the spirit. And I saw, verse 5, 1, 5.1, Revelation 5.1, chapter 5. Notice Mark read this morning and included the word and. 
might not be in some of your new American standard updates. It should be. It's in the Greek, but it wasn't used. And I saw in the right hand. In other words, it continues on that first vision. I saw. And then in verse 2, it says, I saw an angel with a loud voice. Verse 4 of chapter 5, then I began to weep loudly. And verse 6, and I saw between the throne, verse 6, and then verse 11, then I looked and I heard. All the time, I, I, I. John is receiving this vision, this revelation from God. As we see here, John himself experienced the revelation. Third, how is the scene revealed? Go back to 4, verse 2, immediately it says, I was in the Spirit. Again, this phrase is in reference to a prophetic vision. A prophetic vision. It's a special wording. We saw back in Revelation 1.10, and listen closely, it is not something we can reduplicate. It was a special revelation by God in a way that allowed John to experience everything in a supernatural way. Like we saw, he saw, he heard, he felt, literally. I began to weep. But obviously, folks, listen, this is not something we all experience. Special revelation. I was in the spirit. is a special revelation. Again, folks, this is not something that comes along all the time. There are prophetic visions. There are so-called prophetic visions today. People talk about it all the time in some of the charismatic leanings of the church. But folks, it ain't happening. Not that God is unable to give them. Listen closely. But God chooses not to because he's given his church all they need in the Bible and the revelation that he's given them. Knowing and serving him can be found by just studying what he's given. At the same time, we need to be very careful in reading more into this prophetic vision than's there. I think in this book more than any other, except for maybe Ezekiel. Another book you want to just jump into that would be a great one. <laughs> be on, it's a long ride. We must have to be, and we must be extremely humble in our interpretation. You will see this with me uh, by God's grace, not because I'm something special, but I'm going to use words like I think, and this probably alludes to more than any other book. Okay? I'm going to do, you use these terms, but this does not mean that the book doesn't have value. I'm going to explain a couple of things today, like the Jasper Stone and the Sardis in appearance. I'm not going to come down dogmatically and say, I got it. This is what it means. I'm going to do my best to give you what I think it means. But ultimately, some of this prophetic language is hard to understand. Okay? But it doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't make sense or Revelation can't be read. Because remember, 1-3. 1-3. Look at it. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Blessed. That's a promise. So we study it. Does that mean that we can dot every I and cross every T and know exactly what every illusion in the prophetic vision is? Not necessarily. But we'll do our best. 
and we will be blessed because God's word promises it. You understand? Fourth, where is the scene set? When the setting moves from earth to the court in heaven. We move from Christ and his dealing with the church. Remember, the churches are around him in that vision. To heaven and the throne of God. In the first vision, Jesus meets John on the island. This time, Jesus calls him and he goes up to heaven in the vision. Now, John is taken up in the vision. Many try to find an allusion to the rapture here. But I, need, I think we need to avoid that interpretation. I do not see the similarities to the rapture. First of all, it's more of a vision, not an actual bodily resurrection and going up to heaven and getting glorified bodies. Doesn't say anything about that. Second, John gives no details of 1 Thessalonians 4 that are mentioned by Paul that one would think. If he's talking about the rapture, he'd give some of those details. Now, I know that's an argument from silence, but it's also an argument from silence big time to say it's a reference to the rapture. Let's leave that out. John, as we see, will spend the bulk of his time in heaven for the rest of the revelation in this prophetic vision. The behold, you see it. It says, behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is an alert to a special divine intervention. Usually when that word behold is used, God gave John a special divine intervention or revelation at that point. It's a look out, look closely, listen up. Not the same door as Revelation 3. I stand at the door and knock. It's not the same door. This is a different one. A special divine revelation. Again, this is one of only a few scenes in the Bible from heaven. Isaiah 6, Daniel 7, maybe. Probably Ezekiel 1. So it should be studied carefully. For a good understanding of heaven. Paul appears to have experienced heaven, but did not elaborate on it in 2 Corinthians 12, right? Talked about him. I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, right? But he doesn't elaborate on it. So there's only a few explanations of what heaven is like. And this is one. Fifth setting. Who gives the vision? I think it's the Lord, and I think it's obvious from the way it's worded. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. Now that's the first voice is we found in 110 was Jesus. That Jesus is speaking to. Again, as we saw last time, the trumpet is often used to appoint to the authority of the announcement. And six, what is the vision about? And this is a key for the seven. Right here. Key. Point. Get this. The Lord Jesus will show John what must take place after these things. This is key. This is the whole point. This is a very important statement, folks. What must take place after these things. It gives us a hint into a change. It's very similar to a previous statement made by John in 119. Look at our bite, Jesus in 119. Look at it, 119, real quick. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. 
Thus begins the explanation of the third part of the main outline of the book. Right here, Revelation 4 is almost an identical thing as that last phrase in 119. And it's very similar to 1-1, which is the whole point of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants, the thing which must soon take place. This is the key, key point of the entire Bible, or of Revelation, rather. They must take place, because as Thomas states, they are fixed and certain outworkings of God's will. Right here. The fixed and certain outworkings of God's will. Behind every prophecy, folks, from God is the truth that all of human history is in the hands of the Creator. Look at the details. As we study through Revelation, he is going to give details that are staggering. He's going to say what people say during that time. He's going to give exact sequence of events that happen. Precision is startling. He's going to describe the Antichrist. He's going to describe all of these things to precision. Now, why is he giving us this stuff? Rather, why did he originally give it to these seven churches? Is it because he wants to help out with their curiosity? They're, they're dying. They're on the edge of the seat. Who's the Antichrist? Which one is he? It must be the Emperor Domitian. It must be Nero. They might be thinking on curiosity. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. That is not why the book of Revelation was written. This is so important. Please get it. It's funny because I remember when I first said, hey, we we'll start studying the book of Revelation. The first thing that I thought, because man, I bet people might show up for this one, I said, what? Curiosity. But the whole book is not about that. It's not about curiosity, folks. It's about showing and reminding the people of God that God is in sovereign control of everything into the future. <coughs> it's not about fulfilling your curiosities on how things are going to be. It's about you knowing that God is in control and that he has ordained the beginning or the end from the beginning. That's the point of Revelation. These things must take place after. That's what it says. I will show you what must take place after these things. It must happen. Ultimately, the book of Revelation is not a call to figure out who the Antichrist is. It's not a call to figure out, you know, what age we're in. Revelation 2 through 3. That's not what it's about. It's about God is in sovereign control and he's ordained and predetermined the exact outworkings of the last days to precision. He has ordained the end from the beginning. That's what prophecy is all about. We're going to see this when Mark goes through Daniel and he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, right? And 
And what happens? Daniel says, hey, this vision is about you. And what happens? He falls and he chews on grass. Why? What does it show? God raises up. And he told what was going to happen before it happened, which shows what? He's in sovereign control. Prophecy shows that God is in control. That's what it's about. From this setting, so the vision, John got and gave us some understanding. We're going to study this and, and see that this is something out of this world, a special revelation. And we're also going to see what's going to happen in the future, which ultimately points to that God is in control. So we need to trust him. In the same way that these churches that he is writing to were dealing with a sin-filled world, they needed to be reminded that God is in control despite their circumstances. You too need to know that. As much as we see this sin-filled world, all the depravity, all the things that seem to be falling down all around us, you need to know that God is in sovereign control, so trust him. He is ordained and in the grave. Trust the Lord. This is a call to trust the Lord. Now let's move on to the objective, the object level of worship. 4.2b And behold, the throne was standing in heaven, and the one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white and golden crowns on their heads. Out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the fire burning, or which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So, who is the object of worship? It's found in verse 2. One sitting on the throne. One sitting on the throne. We will see the central location of the whole scene is the throne. But obviously, the one who is in the middle of the throne is the central person. Or persons, as we will see. The Bible is clear that God is revealed as three persons, correct? That make up one God. In this vision, God the Father is the first person of the Trinity in the spotlight. He is obviously the one who is sitting on the throne. He is distinguished from the Lamb in 5.5 and 5.7. And he's distinguished from the Spirit, who is mentioned in 4, five, in, in four verse 5, the seven spirits of God. But it is important to note that just because the Father is emphasized in the first half of the vision, it does not mean that the Spirit and the Son are less the objects of worship. I would suggest the vision does not stop in chapter 4, as I had mentioned. Chapter 5 is just as much a part of the vision of the worship scene. But I think it's interesting that the details of the Father himself 
are limited. Notice, no title or name is given originally to him. The Spirit is identified as the Spirit right away. And the Son is identified by the titles the Lamb and the Lion almost immediately. The Father is not called the Father here. He's just called the one sitting on the throne. Also, there's a few distinction, uh, distinguishing characteristics given for the Father. And he is not specifically called a man. That is very important in this passage. Nowhere is God called a man. Or does he even say that he appears to look like a man? Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. We'll talk about that when Mark gets to deal with that in Daniel. But we'll talk. It's very important here. Though he is described as sitting on a throne and having a right hand, these concepts of sitting on a throne and having a right hand are what's called anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphisms. What they are, are human representations used so that we can understand a little bit of who God is. Right hand does not literally mean what? Right hand. It is being used to explain the seat of authority. Okay? A position of authority. Sitting on a throne is what? Talking about a position of authority. I think the, limita the limitations of details carries with it a warning. Get this if you get nothing else from the message. Trying to paint an image in our minds of what God looks like is forbidden. That's not what he's trying to get at here. Don't try to draw a picture in your mind what the Father looks like from this. Because it's not supposed to. After all, making an image by carving it or in our mind of God and what God may look like is what? Forbidden. <laughs> Exodus 20 verse 4. Right? God is spirit. He reveals himself in these visions using human attributes just to describe, and this is it, his character, his glory. But he is God and he is spirit, as John 4, 24 states. Hebrews eleven twenty seven states he is unseen. 1 Timothy 1, 17 says he is invisible. One of the persons of the Trinity became man, right? But the Father did not become man. Neither did the Spirit. That is why the Spirit, being described as seven spirits in verse 4-5, is not a problem, folks. It doesn't mean that there are seven persons of the Spirit. These descriptions of the Spirit are meant to just characterize the Spirit. Not to give a literal visual picture for us to uh, draw of Him. These descriptions are not meant to give us a picture in our mind that we can draw and then make an idol. These scenes are supposed to reveal the glory of God, who he is. So as we study this, don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, there's the father, that gray-haired old king sitting on this throne. How many times have I seen these Jehovah Witness pamphlets? They give you these pamphlets. And they got all these characterizations of the Father and the Son and how they that's not what you that just goes to show that they're wrong. They're missing it. 
Don't try to picture who God looks like in your mind. Rather, try to picture in your mind who God is. What is that? That is not, that is not figures. That is character and nature. That's what the reason is about. Who is God? Later in the chapter, verse 8, those who respond say he's the Lord God, the Almighty. And in verse 11, he's called as our Lord and our God. You created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So, let's develop a little bit better. We're doing all right. Y'all hang in there. I get my full 45 minutes. Where is God? Verse 2b, a throne standing in heaven. 3b, 4, and 6 mentions this throne. The throne concept is one of the key concepts in the entire book of Revelation, if not the main theme in the book of Revelation. A good study would be for all of us to read the entire book of Revelation and try to figure out how many times the book of the word throne is mentioned. It's alluded to in all but five of the chapters of, Romans, uh, of Revelation. It is used 13 times in 11 verses in chapter 4 alone, this concept of the throne. So what is the throne? The throne of God carries with it the symbolism of, and we need to get this, God's sovereign exercise of judgment. God's sovereign exercise of judgment. From the throne originates all of God's wrath throughout the rest of Revelation. It comes from the throne. The wrath goes out. God sovereignly did what? Royally decreed. Do. Happen. Exercise judgment. Restore this creation to its right place. From the throne, the ruling of the king comes down. And in this case, it's the ruling of the king of the universe who is handing down his judgment upon the creation that has rebelled against him. The throne is the central point of the entire room. Everything is around the throne, or in the midst of the throne, or before the throne. Everything is tied to God's sovereign exercise of judgment. This is a beautiful picture here. Again, if the throne and giving things out from the throne are the two main emphasis, we're back to arguably the main point of the book, which is God is in sovereign control of everything. He orders the end from the beginning. The throne points to that. As well as that word that we talked about was given. You're going to see it over and over and over. God when we look at the world, and starting, I'm just thinking about Esther and the book of Esther, but we look at the sovereignty of God and we know that God is working behind the scenes in the book of Esther, right? We know he's sovereignly working. It's a fact. The book of Esther is given. Here, he is going to outwardly show and bring about all of his sovereignty on full display, and he's going to put the creation back right under the feet of the Savior. That's what it's all about. Again, where is God speaks a lot of who God is. He's on the throne. But also, in further details, what is God like? He is pure or holy, like a jasper stone. Okay, 
obviously these figures <laughs> were not as quite clear on. There's much discussion. I lean that this is one, this stone is pointing to a stone that is not the same jasper we call today. It's a stone that had the appearance of clear or crystal, maybe even a diamond. I think it may point to God's holiness or purity. Second, he is fiery in his judgment. That is a sardis. Now this stone's easier to identify. It's a fiery red stone, and it always has been. It's very well, it very well could point to again to God's judgment by fire, which is characterized by God so well in this book. So we've got God as a just judge. Third, we see a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. This may point to his mercy and his grace. He is merciful and gracious. The rainbow in the Bible obviously calls to mind what? Noah and the flood, right? And the promises that God would not flood the earth again. So we have this great balanced picture. We have that God is just and he's fiery in his judgment against all sin. Yet he's also considered merciful and loving and kind and gracious, not always giving us all that we deserve by grace in Christ. This points again to God's mercy and grace despite the wickedness of this world. The green emerald may even point to that idea of God's grace. He is just in his anger, but yet he's also merciful and gracious. What is he doing? Verse 5. Verse 5. Out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Well, there's two things that are happening. First, there is lightning bolts and sounds of thunder coming out from the throne. Um, how many of you have, everybody, right, have experienced uh, a Florida thunderstorm? I don't know about you, but that, 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 when I was a kid, brought fear to my soul. And you can hear that, pow, bang, it's loud, it'll rumble the whole house. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Pretty powerful stuff, right? Um, I know it, it used to petrify a toilet table. Hopefully we pass that. But you get the same kind of vision. You get the same kind of idea. You're in heaven. John's in heaven. He sees this man, uh, this being, this being that's fiery and just. And yet there's this rainbow that points to his mercy and his grace. And out from this boom, thunder and lightning, what is it pointing to? Again, it's pointing to God's holy justice, his stoked justice. His holiness. Exodus 19, when it was given to the Israelites. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. We get an idea of God is one to be what? Feared. This is not the message that's preached in most churches in the idea here is obviously to bring a glimpse of the holy anger of God in sin. Let folks listen. When you think of all those things that I begin my message with, the sin, the false teacher, the persecution, all those things, what do you think of? Oh, this is terrible we're at. Oh, this is horrible. I can't survive. How am I going to keep going? Everything's falling down around me. No. Think. God's 
holy justice. Revelation 4. God will bring an end to all of this cursing. God is holy. Ultimately, understanding God's exercise of his justice should call all of us to worship. Psalm 29.8 The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strip the forest bare and his temple everything. In his temple everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood in judgment. Yet the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. That's the end of the psalm. Or psalm. At the beginning it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The height of what causes us to worship is knowing the God of the Bible. The God of Revelation chapter 4. Know that no sin will go unpunished. This groaning creation will come to an end because the one who sits on the throne says these things must happen. Trust the Lord. And final activity is the Spirit's activity. Spirit's act, participation in purifying the world. It says in verse 5, last point, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Which are the seven spirits of God. These lamps are not these are not indoor lamps. <laughs> these are torches. Again, this symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit's work before the throne or in the presence of the Godhead. It is here that we see the blazing fire which highlights so well God's activity of just judgment in order to purify the world of evilness. Again, thus begins the emphasis over and over and over again of God's wrath against the sinfulness of humanity. I was struck here when I looked at this in verse 6. Because I have a tendency, as y'all like me, to view the Holy Spirit as more of a friend or a comforter. He just kind of comes along and helps me out. Almost like a writer. Don't have seven burning torches in my mind. The blazing fire of God's holy justice. I think all of us need to have maybe a higher view of the Holy Spirit that He loves us. The one who is the consumer of the ungodly. As Thomas stated, the scene is now being established through these additional features. An awe-inspiring picture of the heavenly court, poised to launch this massive program to purify God's creation. Folks, Genesis 1 is coming. The evil, the wickedness, the deception, God's teaching, the persecution. the 
You are sovereign in control of everything. And you will restore your Thank you.